Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about the role of pathology in fighting cancer with Dr. David Rim. Dr. Rim is professor of pathology and of medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. And here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So, you know, I think when people think about pathology and don't want to fall asleep, the lay public, they're thinking about like Quincy, if you're old enough to remember, uh, was Jack Klugman's TV show? He was like forensic and you don't do that kind of stuff, right? No, that's forensic pathology, which is quite different than uh, pathology, general pathology or anatomic pathology, and then more specifically pathology related to cancer. Gotcha. So anatomic pathology, isn't that like autopsies and stuff? So anatomic pathology includes autopsies, but it also includes... You don't do that either, right? I do do autopsies. You do? Yeah, I do autopsies about uh, one month a year. Oh, gotcha. But um, what we think about as anatomic pathology predominantly is looking at little tiny pieces of tissue or biopsies that are taken from patients uh, to investigate a mass or a lump or a bump where we don't know what it is, and so a little tiny piece of tissue is taken, and then we examine it after processing under the microscope. So that's like a like a regular biopsy, right? Like if somebody's got a breast lump, that kind of thing? Exactly, exactly. So um, a, a physician might palpate a breast lump or a patient, and then they would visit their surgeon, and the surgeon might uh, do uh, anesthetize the area, and then do a core biopsy or put a core, a needle into it and take a tiny piece of tissue that's probably uh, less than a millimeter in thickness and maybe a centimeter or so in length. Hmm. So, and that's looked at under the microscope and that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, for most pathologists or am I, is that seems pretty simple to me. I don't know. Well, it's a little tricky. Uh, It takes a lot of training to um, become proficient at looking at that. First we process it and then we, um, uh, process it and and cut it in a way that we can actually look at it under the microscope, and that takes a little time. But then once we look at it, there are certain things that we look for. We look at different patterns of the cells, the cellular pattern and the stromal pattern, but then we also process it uh, in other ways to look at protein expression. And both of those things are really important in coming up with uh, a diagnosis of cancer, first of all, but secondly, subclassifying the cancer so that we can provide the right treatment. You mean it's not enough to just know that this is breast cancer or this is lung cancer or no cancer? No. So, um, in fact, that's where we were maybe 40 or 50 years ago. When, when I went could... to medical school? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> well, yeah, me A too. little bit. <laughs> And in fact, um, when I did went, uh, go to medical school, some of the tests that we do now weren't available. Uh, but now, just looking at it under the microscope is a good start. And in fact, in most, place, most cases, we can make the diagnosis of cancer by just looking at it under the microscope. But that's not good enough because there are a lot of different subtypes or classifications of cancer. And so what we want to do is make sure we classify it correctly in order to give the patient the right therapy. Can you give me an example? 
Sure. So, um, in, in fact, that's my specialty area, sort of the subclassification of those cancers using molecular tools. So, for example, in breast cancer, we would look at the tissue using conventional colored stains and look at just the shapes and sizes of the cells, and then that we'd make our diagnosis of cancer. Once we made the diagnosis of cancer, then we know we have to subclassify it. So, secondarily, we might look for expression of certain proteins. One protein that we look for in breast cancer routinely is called estrogen receptor. If the estrogen receptor is expressed, then we can give drugs that specifically block the estrogen receptor pathway, since that's, that is uh, one of the pathways that's making the tumor progress. And in fact, uh, a classic drug for estrogen receptor is called tamoxifen, or there are other drugs called aromatase inhibitors. But we don't give the patients that drug unless we know, using this special test, that their tumor is expressing estrogen receptor. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way to know that is by doing a protein-based test uh, called immunohistochemistry. And we don't, so we can't look at that specimen just by the standard stains and say, oh, that patient will respond to an estrogen receptor inhibitor. We have to do those special immunohistochemistry stains. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you some uh, old secrets of mine. Uh, When I was uh, working in a laboratory uh, during my study days, I was in an endocrinology lab. And it was the lab that processed those receptor studies, but they weren't staining. They were actually measuring binding of hormones to receptors using radioactivity and stuff. I guess we don't do that anymore. A ligand binding assay. That's called a ligand binding assay. And we actually did those up until the late 80s. But then in the early 90s... You're giving away my age now, David. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. (laughs) But in uh, the mid-90s, really... Um, uh, in the late 80s, there was a paper that showed we could do immunohistochemistry, which is an assay where we look at the protein expression on the slide. That's using antibodies? Using antibodies, as opposed to grinding up the tissue and doing a ligand binding assay, which is what the assay that we talked about where you grind it up and measure it. Um, the antibody-based assay is what we now use as a standard and not just for estrogen receptor. Uh, as you know, we also will use that for HER2 which is another um, breast cancer biomarker that subclassifies breast cancer that you can only do with molecular tests, but does lead to very different therapies and different outcomes as a function of those therapies. Hmm. So some of these tests that you're talking about are the ones we've talked about so far. These are, uh, I guess, FDA approved, or is it the FDA that approves these kinds of tests? Or? So that's, that's a great question because um, there's a lot of uh, confusion about what makes for a good test. And, in fact, we in pathology have uh, labs that are called CLIA labs. CLIA stands for Clinical Laboratory Improvement Act. And, in fact, that sort of certifies our lab. It's kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval, if you will, for our lab. And if our lab does those tests, that means we do very extensive validation to make sure we're getting the answer right for every patient. But we might also use FDA-approved tests, and not all tests are FDA approved. Some are just um, certified by the lab and other tests are FDA approved. And uh, which how we uh, decide which one to use depends on a number of variables, including um, the type of test we're looking to do and the number of tests we need to do and, and the availability of FDA approval for certain tests and not others. Hmm. Is this something that patients should be concerned about or they just kind of leave it up to the pathology lab? I think that 
the patients mostly interact with their clinicians, and their clinicians are the ones that really make this decision as to where to send their specimen. And uh, almost without exception in this country anyway, labs have this uh, approval, or they're CLIA-certified labs, which means that the College of American Pathologists has surveyed their lab and tested them and tested to make sure on uh, on sort of sample specimens or specimens that are not from that patient but just from a, a test, pa- test patient specimens that that lab is up to the task of doing the test correctly. And we have to do that test uh, twice a year to make sure that our lab's um, accurately testing all the specimens. Hmm. And so um, as an oncologist or as a surgeon, when you spend a specimen off from one of your uh, cancer patients, you want to make sure you send it to a CLIA-certified lab. But, of course, in the U.S., that's almost a given. Gotcha. So patients can feel comfortable that the, that the labs, that their materials are going pretty much no matter where they are, are likely to be you know, at least adequate, right? In this, in this country, yes. That right. uh, Essentially all of the labs that are certified, uh, in order to get insurance reimbursement, which is important to most physicians, uh, they need to send that, or that specimen, that laboratory must be certified and pass the uh, College of American Pathologist surveys or laboratory accreditation program. And once they pass that, then they can uh, submit for insurance. But isn't it true that uh, patients are often encouraged to make sure that their, at least in some cases, their pathology gets a pathological second opinion? I mean, um, am I wrong about that? That no, it's not absolutely. always so clear. And, and in fact, we encourage that. So, ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of pathology is really pretty straightforward, and all the pathologists you ask will agree. But somewhere between 1% and 2% of the pathology we look at, or in a recent study in JAMA, as much as 4% of the pathology we look at in breast cancer is not quite so clear. That is, when we look at it under the microscope, we don't see little letters that say benign or malignant. In fact, we see very tricky patterns that sometimes can be very subtle, and even two highly trained, highly experienced pathologists might disagree. Fortunately, there's not that many cases where that occurs, but there was an article in JAMA earlier this year looking specifically at that category. And when you have millions of breast cancers or hundreds of thousands of breast cancers, as we have in the U.S., there's going to be some small percentage of cases uh, where they're really right on the borderline, where even expert pathologists might disagree on whether or not it's cancer. And that's what was focused on in that uh, article in JAMA earlier this year. Hmm. And I guess it's up to the pathologist to decide whether they want a second opinion is that, or to recommend a so second opinion. So the or? second opinion can come from uh, – the request for a second opinion can come from two sources. Sometimes the patient, as you pointed out, might request it. If they're concerned or their doctor or the oncologist is concerned, they can ask for a second opinion. But sometimes they don't even um, – it doesn't get to that point. That is, the pathologist knows, wow, this is a tricky one. I think I'm going to ask my colleague. And oftentimes that's built into the program. There are many uh, – pathology practices where uh, a case of um, when a diagnosis of malignancy is made, a second pathologist also reviews the case to be sure that there's good uh, consensus or agreement. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I've uh, kind of always wanted to ask pathologists, which I I really haven't gotten around to, is in some ways I I feel like your job must feel very burdensome. Do you ever feel like it's so important to get this thing right? Is it very stressful in those cases where it's borderline and it's such an important 
uh, has so much impact on the patient downstream, or is this this is just routine for you? So pathologists, I think, as a as a profession, tend to be conservative for that reason because we can never make a mistake. A little bit, it's like flying flying an airplane or flying a jet. That's why there's a, you know always a co-pilot and a pilot, and it's a lot of responsibility. If you're flying a, a, a jet, you can never make a mistake. If you do, the plane goes down, and there's a lot of people upset. Um, and it's similar a little bit in pathology. That is, we can never afford to make a mistake, which is why we have systems in place, for example, showing difficult cases to a second pathologist or systems where we use molecular tools to confirm or assist with a diagnosis in order to try to um, have a zero error type practice. And yes, it is. it can be stressful. And as a result of that, um, we have also... Uh, terminology that allows us to not make a mistake. That is, when we're not sure, and it really is in the middle, we might actually call it in the middle, or what some people say, atypical. Atypical means it's not benign and it's not malignant, but frankly, we can't decide. And so we have even a category to prevent us from making a mistake, calling something uh, benign when it's malignant or vice versa. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, I know that in my practice, I sometimes see um, patients where the bone marrow, of course, I, I deal with leukemias and bone marrow problems, where the bone marrow diagnosis was made by a conservative uh, pathologist like yourself or one of your colleagues uh, to indicate their uncertainty about whether this is really a malignancy or not. And yet the clinicians acted as if it were a diagnostic of a malignancy, and that, that can be problematic. Right. So that's where biomarkers come in. And cancer biomarkers are a way to go beyond the information we can get by just looking at the slide. What's a biomarker, David? So a biomarker, um, there's two kinds of biomarkers. There's biomarkers that people use in the blood and then biomarkers that people use for tissue. And tissue biomarker, and both of them mean that they're looking at a molecular marker, either protein expression or DNA mutation or RNA expression, that has been shown to correlate with a specific phenotype or specific response to therapy in patients. All right. Well, that sounds like a whole nother topic that we're going to want to get into after our short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about pathology, cancer, and biomarkers, which we're going to learn about what they are in a minute with Dr. David Rim. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. I'm Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm talking tonight with our guest, Dr. David Rim, about pathology and cancer. David, uh, just before the break, you started introducing the concept of biomarkers, and uh, and uh, we had to take a break. So 
what I got from that was that biomarkers uh, are tests or things that you can detect either in the blood of a patient or in the tissue of a patient that gives further clues about the cancer. Is that right? Yes, and, and both of those things are done by pathologists. The ones that are done in the blood are usually done by a laboratory medicine division, and what they're looking for is a protein that might be in the blood uh, or even a, a smaller molecule like a, an RNA or a, a nucleic acid that might be in the blood that only is in the blood if the patient has a cancer, for example, um, a somewhat well-known biomarker that uh, the older gentlemen in the audience know about is probably PSA. That stands for prostate-specific antigen. And if it was in the blood at a certain high level, then there was an increased probability that the patient would have prostate cancer. Mm. And so that sort of was a screening biomarker that has somewhat lost its... Um, uh, luster, luster, or it's um, the excitement about it has dimmed some as studies have realized that um, it's not the perfect biomarker. Although we we recently interviewed one of our urology colleagues who convinced us quite the opposite. Yeah, well, there, and and you can download that on the podcast, by the way. Okay, I'll be sure to do that. <laughs> uh, but the. Um, the, that's an example of a biomarker in the blood that can really help us. Um, and, and there are other similar examples to figure out if a patient has a cancer or um, where PSA is really useful is to follow a patient uh, after they've had prostate cancer. And then if, it's, if it was high and then they had their cancer cut out by the surgeon or the urologist and then it went way down and then it comes back up, almost certainly the cancer is recurring. And that's another example of a use of a biomarker. Gotcha. Well, can you give us an example of a biomarker which helps you as a pathologist in these nether zones where you're kind of uh, stressed out and sweating because you're not sure it's really cancer or what kind of cancer it is? Are, are there any biomarkers so there like are that? So those are tissue bio. Those tend to be tissue biomarkers. Okay. And a lot of what we do in pathology is assisted by tissue biomarkers. So, for example, we might see a patient that has a biopsy done on a lymph node. And we see that it has cancer, but we don't know what kind of cancer it is, and we're not even completely sure it's cancer. And then we might stain it with some different biomarkers that are proteins that we know are expressed in different kinds, different subclassifications of cancer. For example, we might stain it with a marker called S100. And if it stains positively with S100, even though we didn't know that the patient had melanoma somewhere else or a history of melanoma, we now know that with a pretty high degree of certainty, that patient probably has melanoma because cells that stain with positive with S100 and they have a certain morphologic appearance and they're present in a lymph node is a constellation of findings that tells us this patient has metastatic melanoma. Wow. Well, that's interesting. You know, uh, when I trained in oncology again a few years ago, um, we often ran into the problem of cancers where, uh, which were in a, a metastatic presentation, uh, as you were describing, where we couldn't find a primary tumor. And it was my experience back then, and we're talking a few years ago, that that was very frustrating because uh, there were very few uh, cases where the these I guess tissue biomarkers were so helpful. Has that changed? Are there? Yeah, what, that's what? that's definitely changed over the years. There's a lot more uh, protein specific or specific proteins that help us subclassify. There's still a whole battery of of different proteins we can 
run in this immunohistochemistry test to determine what type of cancer it might be. And there's even other tests. There's even nucleic acid tests now that can help us determine the cell of origin of the cancer. But perhaps more interesting now is that we're actually doing uh, mutation-based testing to see uh, if a given mutation is present. And that is um, a mutation in the DNA, meaning that their normal coding region has a change in one of the base pairs so that now they have an abnormal protein or an abnormal product because of a um, mutation in the DNA. Hmm. Does that mean that the patient inherited this cancer genetically? No, it's not inherited, but in fact, uh, cancer is a disease of damage of the DNA. And so something occurred during that patient's lifetime that caused that damage to occur, not in all of their cells, but just in the cells that are part of the cancer. And sometimes when we find that mutation, even if we don't know where the cancer is from, there might be a treatment that's associated with that specific mutation. Even if you don't know what tissue it came from. That's, uh, that's where we are now. Now, oftentimes that, off, that can lead us to what tissue it came from as well. For example, a mutation in a protein called BRAF most commonly would be from a melanoma, and that might also be S100 positive. But a BRAF mutation could also be found in a colon cancer or more rarely a lung cancer or more rarely even other rare types of cancer. For example, a very rare form of leukemia in my field. And so uh, as, as an example, that uh, mutation is a mutation in which, for which we have a drug. And so regardless of which of those tumors it is, although we will try to classify it, we would use that as an example of a tissue biomarker, in this case a DNA-based tissue biomarker, to determine the likelihood of a patient to respond to a given therapy, in this case the drug vimorafenib. So you're actually measuring this mutation. Exactly. And do you do you then follow the mutation quantitatively to see how they're responding, or is that not useful? No, that's uh, less useful. So interestingly, we can then look for um, absence of the mutation or recurrence of the mutation in free DNA in the peripheral blood. But um, that those sorts of tests are still pretty early days. Um, more typically, once we've found the mutation, we'll treat the patient with it and or with the appropriate drug, but. Often, most often, in fact, when the disease comes back, uh, if the disease comes back, uh, when it comes, it comes back with, without that mutation. That is, the mutation has been selected against by the drug, and other cancer cells that don't have that mutation have evolved, and they take over the uh, role of being the uh, evil cancer that's attacking the patient. Kind of like bacteria that become resistant to the antibiotics you're on? Exactly the same, uh, and probably by very similar mechanisms where there's uh, evolutionary selection against a given genotype. Huh. It's um, fascinating, David. Now, you're here at Yale, and uh, you're kind of a researchy guy, right? So, so much, it seems like a lot of what you've talked about, while certainly very exciting, um, you know, is, is stuff that's come about uh, and already kind of established. How do you know? I mean, how do you know sort of what clinicians like I uh, might need, or or what to develop next in your research career if it involves biomarkers? How do you go about that? So that's a that's a great question because the focus of my lab is really to try to work with clinicians, especially in lung cancer and breast cancer, and try to figure out what their problems are every day in the clinic, and then how we can address those problems in such a way that we can come up with new scientific solutions to either classify the patients or more frequently figure out if we can predict 
which patients will respond to which drugs. And so we spend a lot of time doing um, biological studies looking at expression patterns of either proteins or DNAs to try to figure out which changes in protein expression or which changes in mutations are associated with various responses to therapy for different drugs and can be across tumor types, but more commonly we're working within a tumor type where we're trying to make a diagnostic test more specific. For example, in, in, in the old days, if a patient had breast cancer, we wouldn't test them at all. And then, as we talked about in the earlier segment, we started testing them with estrogen receptor, and then we could give them an estrogen receptor inhibitor. And more recently, we've started testing them with HER2 diagnostics, and we can give them a HER2 inhibitor. And now the most recent and perhaps most exciting therapy to come along during my lifetime is the immune therapies. But now we're in the same boat where it appears in the most recent approval is that we're going to have to test the patients to determine whether or not they're likely to respond to an immune therapy. Uh, and that's where we, um, and that's one of the sort of center focuses of my, about half of my lab currently is trying to determine which are the best tests to use and which are the most accurate tests, which tests have the highest sensitivity and the highest specificity to select patients for immune therapy. Can you give us um, some insight into the kinds of things you're looking at? I mean, how do you go about that? So mostly we um, look at the mechanism of the drug or um, the mechanism of the drug is understood to some greater or lesser extent and the, how the drug signals in the in the cell or how it actually causes the cancer to um, to either be more aggressive or to how it kills the cancer and once we know that mechanism we can ask uh, we can probe the tumor tissue for um, signals that uh, determine whether or not that mechanism is active so uh, in the immune therapy example the way immune therapy works is it inhibits a protein that's expressed in tumors that shuts down the immune system. Well, let's go over that again. So we've got our immune cells, which we're hoping are going to kill the cancer, right? That's the idea. And you're telling me the cancer has some uh, stop signal or something to tell the, the immune cells they can't do that? Yeah, so that's very, it, it's actually co-opting a stop signal that already occurs in people. So when a, a, a baby is conceived, a placenta uh, is actually part of the fetus or part of the baby that will ultimately be delivered. But in order for that baby and that placenta not to be attacked by the mother's immune system, it has to s s express a protein that signals, don't attack me. I'm not, uh, I need not to avoid the immune system. I need to. And so cancers use that same signal. It's called PDL1. It's a protein that's expressed on the cell. And if a cancer expresses that, then the immune system thinks, oh, it's okay not to attack this particular cell. I'll just let it go because it might be something that's important later on for survival of the species. Okay. But in fact, it's not. In fact, it's a cancer cell co-opting a system of avoiding the immune system. And so that's how the therapy works is by blocking that. Uh, and so blocking that pathway uh, so that the immune system now thinks, oh, in fact, this cancer is a cancer, and the immune system goes ahead and attacks it. But unfortunately, probably only about 20% of lung cancers, only maybe 5% of breast cancers, and maybe a higher percentage of some other cancers, uh, bladder may be higher, 
but only a relatively small percentage of patients have a cancer that uses that mechanism. So we have to figure out which patients those are because those are the ones that benefit from the therapy. If you give patients that same drug that would, ben- that would block that system and they don't express pdl one it often can cause complications including uh, ch- uh, difficulty breathing and, and rare, um, even fatal complications in the heart. Wow. So, I, you know, I understand that Yale has participated and continues to do so in, 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 in some of these research trials that have uh, led to the development of these immune drugs and, um, and has had some, you know, to, combinations of drugs that have been developed specifically here. So do you actually work with the tissue coming from patients who participate in those kinds of studies? Yes, actually, um, we, we get some of the tissue that participate in those studies so that we know whether or not they have response to therapy. But after the studies are completed, then the drugs are used uh, as, as part of the regular clinical regimen. But those patients also have their tissue at Yale. And so we can do further studies to try to improve the companion diagnostic tests that, that were established in the original clinical trials. Hmm. Most of the clinical trials that are done, and many of those that were done at Yale, the development of the diagnostic test occurs under the auspices and direction of the drug company. So we can't really participate in that at the very initial development. Huh. And our participation is usually uh, in parallel to that or after that development where we can try to uh, improve the quality of the diagnostic tests and especially the specificity of the diagnostic tests that are developed. So in the patients uh, in whom you're uh, working to improve these biomarkers or the the predictive tests and so on, um, who are getting drugs that are now approved, uh, do the patients have to agree to be giving their tissue for research or how does that work? So in general, before, uh, in, in almost, uh, I think without exception on clinical trials, patients sign a consent statement before they go on a clinical trial. Sure. And there are consent state. there's other trials and there are other collections of tissue. For example, um, just about anyone with lung cancer at Yale, when they come into our clinic, is consented. They're asked if they're willing to give a little piece of excess tissue from their tumor for research purposes. Gotcha. So they're consented right up front, even without knowing exactly what that tissue will be used for later on as we develop new tests that we didn't anticipate a year or two or three ago. So even in the world of pathology, it's really important for patients to uh, participate in clinical research and clinical trials, uh, which helps hopefully helps them, but certainly helps patients in the future, I guess. Absolutely. That's what moves us forward and uh, improves uh, our ability to uh, accurately treat patients with the best possible therapy. Dr. David Rim is professor of pathology and of medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888 888- 234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.